0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Exhibit A Attorneys. I am Jordan Ostroff, and joining me today, we have a much different show. We're going to talk about the ins and outs of forensic accounting and finding fraud with Tracy. Tracy's been investigating fraud for more than 20 years. Uh, This is my favorite interesting fact. So, she didn't always want to be a forensic accountant. In fact, originally, you wanted to be a prison warden, which I think is such a cool thing. I don't think I've ever met anybody that wanted to be a prison warden. Tracy got a uh, was getting a criminology degree and during a class on financial crime investigations reminded her how much she loved another thing I loved from my childhood, Encyclopedia Brown Books. So she continued the criminology degree but added accounting and economics courses so she could sit for the CPA exam. And now here she is finding money in cases of corporate fraud, high net worth divorce and other financial shenanigans. She's been a solo practitioner for 21 years and works on cases that have the most complex financial issues. Her expert reports are easier to read than most, and she prides herself on being able to help almost anyone to understand the financial issues, which I'm sure is a huge thing for not only the clients, but also their lawyers who don't understand a lot of this as well. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: That intro was really good. It's almost as if I wrote it myself.
0: Correct. And you're like the 10th person to say that, but the first one who realized they did write it themselves. So (laughs) normally I just take credit for the great wordsmithing
1: like wait a second and you're right like i don't think there's anyone else in life who said you know what i want to be when i grow up i want to be a prison warden especially not you know uh you know the the red-headed 18 year old who's getting ready to go to college it, like nobody nobody says that that's their career goal but it was for real my ultimate goal like i had this whole plan i walked into the doors of college saying i'm going to get a criminology degree and here's how this is going to go and i'm going to be a prison warden someday
0: and i think to the extent that anybody else did think that they were like want to be serial killers that are like i'm going to be a prison warden so i can get away with stuff
1: and let people out of the prison
0: oh that's even that's i was thinking more like uh shawshank than right i guess the i guess the middle of shawshank not the end of shawshank so. so
1: your next question is, like, why? Why did you want to be a prison warden? Yes. Great question, and really, Jordan.
0: We're, we're just going to do 30 minutes on on wanting to be a prison warden.
1: Well, that would be boring for everyone, I think. I don't know. So I have a fascination with the prison system and the, the social aspect of it and the communities that are formed between the prisoners and how they self-govern and you know how well how they are governed by the official rules and things like that. And so I've always liked documentaries on prisons and things like that. And so um, you know it was just always really uh, something that I was super interested in. And when I got into the criminology program, uh, it, it told I knew I was in the right spot because I was dealing with uh, the criminal stuff. I just happened to take this financial crime investigation course and said, wow, I've always been really good with numbers, and this might actually be a way to um, bring the two things that I like, criminal justice and numbers together, and I can probably make more money as a financial crime investigator than I can as a prison warden.
0: Yeah, I don't know what the average prison warden salary is, but I would assume that to be that you're correct in that.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I make a lot more than a prison warden.
0: Fair enough. We'll, uh, we'll have to Google that afterwards on what the average salary is, right? So our, um, we're going to get into talking about the ins and outs of forensic accounting and finding fraud from the lawyer perspective, from the law firm perspective, from the interacting with your law partners perspective. But before that, I want to talk about our last episode. Um, if you want to watch more of these shows, once we're done here, talking with Tracy, you can listen to our last show. Uh, That aired on Thursday with Megan Robinson, who talked to us about overcoming the common growing pains that law firm owners have. So but enough about that. When we're talking about forensic accounting, now now I'm ready for an actual first question. What are we talking about?
1: Like, what is forensic accounting in a nutshell? So think financial investigations. Um, I always like to say I find money. So uh, my clients are attorneys on behalf of whoever they're representing. And if you were to hear an attorney talking about a case of theirs and they would say something like, we have no idea where the money went, that's the kind of case that I would work on. So it's a lot of tracing of funds through multiple accounts and entities and things like that. Um, It is in some cases figuring out damages. So, you know, two companies get involved in a contract dispute and someone says, we've lost money and it's all your fault. I can come in and figure out how much money was lost and then testify as an expert witness in court.
0: So, from a very the ten thousand foot view what's the percentage breakdown between like we just made a bad business decision to like somebody is committing fraud
1: i mean by the time they get to me they're pretty certain that fraud has occurred it, it's pretty gotcha. rare that i walk away from a case and and say i didn't find any evidence of anything but it happens sometimes i mean even like in the divorce cases you know i get brought in Uh, when people who make a lot of money have a lot of money are divorcing each other. And one spouse is typically saying, I don't know where all the money went or it seemed like we made more during the marriage. Where are the assets? And, you know, once in a while I come out of those cases saying actually everything's accounted for. And I hope that um, you have some peace of mind that at least you did your due diligence and you didn't, you know, walk away from this divorce saying, I wish I had looked further.
0: Yeah. So I imagine there, so there's, there's gonna be those moments where you just, you know, spent a little bit too much money over so long of a time frame to not really know where, why there's less in savings or whatever it is.
1: Right, I think people of all earning capacities underestimate how much they spend. Like if I asked you right now, how much do you spend every month on eating out? You would throw out a number and I bet the real number is somewhere 50% more, 100% more because people just have um, delusions about how much they spend, right? They just, it's hard to keep track in your mind how much you spend. Then imagine if you're super wealthy, like you don't have to keep track of how much you spend. So they have no idea on a monthly basis how much they spend. And so sometimes I'm looking for where did the money went. Other times, where did the money go? Other times I'm just looking for we need to know how much was spent every month so that on going forward basis after divorce, we know how much child support or spousal support should be paid so that the parties can maintain the same standard of living.
0: Yeah. I was talking to a, um, I guess he's a business consultant now, but he used to be a CFO for some, uh, like fortune 500 companies. And like, literally he has stories of like, yeah, you know, $1.1 million in a rounding error, like, you know, whatever we lost it. And I'm just like, my mind is blown for, uh, you know, the situation where you just not misplaced, but like went over budget by, you know, seven, eight figures on some of the things. It's crazy.
1: Right. So six years ago, I was the financial expert for a pretty big name billionaire who was getting divorced. And I was going through all of their spending for a five year period as a family. Um, And your mind kind of gets warped in terms of what dollar amount matters. It's like, oh, well, we don't know what that $10,000 was for, who cares, right? Oh, well, there was $50,000 spent on that and we're not quite sure how that shook out. but who cares? And it's, it, it, it warps your mind.
0: And uh, Kelly Paxson came in to say, she looks forward to you analyzing Bill and uh, Melinda Gates' divorce in the future.
1: I wish, Kelly. So, so here's my theory. My theory is that they have a fully negotiated g- agreement already and that that was done before they, um, before anyone found out about the divorce. Cause that's what happens a lot because everyone knows that when you're a big name like that and you announce a divorce, there's going to be vultures circling and whatnot. And so many times they just, um, negotiate the whole thing, uh, before anyone knows that it's even happening.
0: Makes total sense. And then from the standpoint of fraud, I mean, I know, I know fraud from the very criminal black letter law type standpoint where, you know, intentionally taking something that's not yours from your perspective, though. I mean, what's that definition look like?
1: It looks exactly the same. So first of all, it's proving, you know, proving what's missing, proving who took it. And then we have the intent piece, which is sometimes the hardest piece of my work, because, of course, you can't get into someone's mind. So what I'm looking for are clues that indicate this wasn't an accident, it wasn't a mistake. And so the things that um, sometimes often point to intent are a pattern of behavior. So if something happens repeatedly, that's probably not an accident. The other thing is, that I often see is someone who is concealing information or deleting documents, deleting data, doing something affirmatively to cover up a trail. If a transaction was a mistake, no one would be going back and trying to cover it up probably, right? I mean, you could say maybe someone who made a mistake is afraid for their job and they covered something up because they didn't want to lose their job over an accident but when again when we see repeatedly that someone is trying to cover their tracks that would lead us to believe there's probably intent there
0: so obligatory so like tom brady smashing his cell phone during the uh deflate gate stuff
1: yeah i mean accidents happen you know the uh the desktop computer accidentally fell into the ocean we don't know how that happened yeah
0: (laughs) makes total sense so from this i mean obviously the pattern of behavior is an easy one unless they're like really getting taken advantage of over months. But from the like intentional destruction of things, how often, or, or when do you see when things are destroyed so much, they don't even know that there was something destroyed to know that there's something being covered up.
1: That's a good question. Thank you. So yeah, here's what I see a lot more often okay. in the cases I work is that the people who are stealing have a certain level of arrogance and they don't actually try all that hard to cover up their tracks and destroy things. Yes, I have actually had a client uh, who eventually went to prison who literally chucked a desktop computer into the ocean so that something couldn't be retrieved from it. (laughs) Um, The,
0: The files are in the computer.
1: Right. And and yes, in cases that I work on, there will be files that are have been deleted, but it's not that often that the files have been deleted and the person has gone and purposely overwritten the hard drive so that the deleted files can't be recovered. Usually it's, it's actually pretty sloppy. And so in your typical case, what we'll do is, um, you know, ensure that the computers go to a computer forensics person so that we can grab the data look to see if there's any deleted stuff. And what we need is typically there if it wasn't deleted all that long ago. And so the amount of times that I've been involved where there's been something super fancy that has been done are, are few relatively
0: speaking. It always cracks me up on like the, uh, request to produce where it's like, all right, here's every monthly statement for like five years, except for the one month that you really need. And it's like, all right, well, let's, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper to find, where that one file happened to uh, misplace itself or whatnot.
1: Well, yeah, and my favorite is, you know, there's one bank statement missing, but if you look at the ending balance on the previous one and the beginning balance on the other one, you can see there was only a $10,000 change in balances. There must not have been very much that happened in that missing month. So you don't really need that one. Oh, contrary, we still need that one. So from
0: a, from a law firm partnership standpoint um, or from a law firm management standpoint, what are some of the things that that lawyers should look out for either internally or externally about bringing somebody with your experience in? Like what are some of the tells?
1: So I've been a solo practitioner for 21 years and and that's by design, right? I don't want partners. I don't want potential stealing from one another and and the drama that goes along with it. So, but, you know, assume you've got a law partner or two. um, Really what I see happening is that, Partners start taking a hands-off approach to the numbers, maybe because they're intimidated by the numbers, maybe because they're too busy with the practice of law, um, maybe because um, they're just too busy making money that they don't have time to sit and count the money. Um, It is when the attorneys take that hands-off approach and they're not double-checking on a monthly basis what's going on that bad things can happen. So you might have a law firm where uh, we've got our paralegal who handles all the money coming in and makes all the deposits and reconciles the bank account. And that's all happiness. Well, that's not happiness. What we need is, first of all, um, something in the accounting world that we call segregation of duties, where you don't let one person handle everything. Right. In this case, the paralegal is handling all the money. You kind of want to divide up those duties, maybe between a paralegal and an assistant, because they would naturally uh, be checking up on one another, even if they don't realize it. Um, but even as important, maybe more important, is the owner being involved in the process. When that bank statement comes in every month, checking it over and making sure your employees know you're checking it over. Right. So so casual statements about, oh, when I reviewed the bank statement, i um, a a good question here or there, hey, on the bank statement, I saw this, could you tell me what this was for? Right, that imparts on them that you're double checking the things. Those are truly segregation of duties and double checking the bank statements are two of the cheapest and simplest ways that a law partner can stop fraud from occurring in the firm.
0: And well, and not even, I mean, from the the separation of duties, I mean, not even actually from fraud, just like legitimate mistakes and oversight a lot of times you might have somebody catch it when they're looking at a different part of a settlement statement for a PI case or, you know, whatever it is just yep. to put that second pair of eyes may prevent mistakes, let alone preventing fraud.
1: How do you know so much about this?
0: Uh, Cause I run a law firm and art. Right? And at the end of the day, my wife's the one that stamps all of it because she owns the other half. And, and anytime we outsource any or should I say outsource, anytime anybody else is involved in it, my wife is like the most anal about, you know, because we've got the trust account rules and, and all those things. So I'm I'm there with you. Uh, I do like the idea, though, of just like randomly sending an email be like, hey, uh, what did you spend $8.76 on at Amazon? Just to show that you are going well, through some of the numbers.
1: Yeah, don't be dumb about it with an $8.76 transaction, though. Like, I mean, like, make your question be about something that counts, Right you know maybe it's more so like um i noticed a lot of amazon transactions and they're all kind of small but but are we using amazon more something like that right i mean because you you want it to be a legitimate sounding question
0: well i always get the account my accountant will be like what was this and i'm like i don't know like it was it was snacks or it was pens i don't know something or it was pieces of paper
1: we call it miscellaneous
0: yeah there we go it's uh, office expenses so I love that concept of breaking things up and keeping and still keeping an active role for the, for the standpoint of like as firms grow and the owner takes themselves out of some of it, like what's, what's a workable solution for them to be involved enough, but not still too involved.
1: Sure. So what you're going to do as your firm grows is you're going to have someone at the firm who is probably receiving money in and, and recording some transactions. Um, You're going to have an outside bookkeeper accountant type who is going to record other transactions, maybe record all of them. But so now you've got, but you've got two people involved, right? You've got the internal person, you've got the external person, and the external person is going to have no ability to take any money from you. They don't have access to your bank account. They can't withdraw money. They are simply there to record things and reconcile things. So there you've got your division. And then at the end of every month or every quarter, as the owner you are going to want to have a sit down with um, the bookkeeper accountant type to go over what happened, right? Because you need to understand anyway, how much did we bring in, how much went out on a, on a, you know, higher level basis. And so now you've got all your bases covered because you've got all these folks involved.
0: Do you ha- have any guidance on how frequently those meetings should take place or how does an owner decide between monthly? or quarterly or whatever it's going to be?
1: I think that if the owner has some financial knowledge of their own and some, some wherewithal to do it on a monthly basis on their own without the input for anyone else, then do that. You know, look at your statements on a monthly basis and then meet with the outside accountant quarterly. Um, they're going to spot things you might not have spotted. Um, they might be looking for trends. They might ask some questions. Why Why does this look like this? And the owner is probably going to say, oh, I didn't realize that. Or, oh, there's a great explanation for it. Super simple. So my recommendation is at least quarterly, if you have enough knowledge to and, and enough commitment to look at your own numbers monthly. If you don't have that commitment to do it on your own or you don't have enough understanding, then I would say, try to have a little phone call or something with your accountant monthly just um because think about it this way there's an awful lot of money that could disappear in a quarter's time it it you know it seems like a monthly meeting that seems like an awful lot but in three months time how much money could walk away from your firm
0: well i also think the sooner you catch you know any issue the the easier it is to address
1: right even if it's an error even if it's overspending on a line item that you just didn't realize you were overspending on you know we've been outsourcing something or another and all of a sudden the cost has shot up and the owner might say okay we need to put the brakes on if we're spending that much we'd be better off bringing it in-house or something something like that right so it it doesn't have to be a fraud issue it can be a purely operational issue that you're going to catch early and save yourself a bunch of money
0: so let's say we've got a situation we see frequently. You've got an older, more established attorney who brings on a younger attorney to their practice, um, gives them some equity, there's some sort of transition plan, but maybe that younger attorney doesn't have the same access to, every, to everything. You know, maybe the older attorney is the one who's still having those meetings. What can that younger attorney partner do to still keep an eye on things? You know, is it asking to, is it asking to be part of that meeting or is there something else that they can look out for To see if there may be financial issues going on.
1: Yeah, it's definitely asking to be a part of that meeting, and if you've got an ownership interest, even if it's smaller, um, there should be some sort of open book policy, right? There should be some level of access granted, especially if if you've got an ownership interest such that. You know, the tax return, uh, you're going to be partly responsible for that information. You certainly, um, the IRS says you have every right to see that tax return. And so you should have access to the underlying information as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a matter of asking, I think.
0: Well, I love, I didn't know that. So that's great that they have They have some leverage because the IRS is going to mandate that they have access to it. Well, to see, this is,
1: something, this is something we use in litigation when we're doing uh, discovery requests and You know, um, let's say like it's a divorce and husband has part ownership in a company and we ask for the tax returns and he says, oh, we couldn't possibly, you know, those are confidential. Uh, Well, actually, you have access to them as an owner and the IRS says you have to have access to them as an owner. So therefore, uh, you can give them to us
0: makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So what about, I mean, is there any wisdom that you have in terms of like employee theft, just an employee at the com- at the law firm taking something or running credit cards the wrong way? I mean, is other than looking at the, the, um, other than looking at the statements, like is there anything for a lawyer to look out for from that standpoint?
1: So these types of schemes typically start small. And then they ratchet up as, as an employee realizes no one is listen no one is watching. um, They start stealing more. And so they do what I call introductory fraud, where, you know, there may be a hundred dollar transaction or $200 transaction. And they're trying to see, is anyone going to ask me about that? Is anyone going to catch that? Um, And so does that mean the attorney has to be looking at teeny tiny transactions? Not necessarily, but what I see is those transactions start when the employee has a feeling that everyone's hands off so to the extent that the owner could be more involved on a daily basis and give the appearance that they are looking at things that's probably one of the easiest and best preventions
0: yeah I know I had a uh, I had the I guess an opposite situation we had an employee I guess this was two years ago um, who had to take like uber for for a business purpose I don't remember what was going on with their car but like we needed them to go pick something up and then like Two months later, they took an Uber ride and forgot to switch it over. And they were just like, and they, they let me know before we even found it. They're like, oh my God, I just got home. I realized it was on this card. Like, do you want to fire me? And I was like, no, no, no. Like, what are you talking about? It was a, you know, like a $12 right. Uber ride. And the fact that you went out of your way to make sure to alert us was like a really good uh, standpoint. Right. So I was like, yeah, don't even worry about it. It's totally fine.
1: I think probably one of the most common things I see when a business owner finds a fraud by an employee and they're looking back and trying to think about, were there any signs of this? The most common one I see is that the employee was living above their means, right? They they bought the Harley Davidson. They had a car that was sort of beyond what their known means were, or there was the flashy watch or something like that. And the owner can look back and say, at the time, I thought that was unusual because I kind of knew how much he and his wife made in their jobs, and I, I didn't think that they could afford that. Now, the if the employee is ever confronted with something like that or the issue comes up, you know, the answer is always, I got an inheritance. <laughs> I don't know who all these people are getting inheritances. Wish it would be me. <laughs> um, but uh, jokes aside, it is that that lifestyle that exceeds the known means is probably one of the most common red flags that I see in practice.
0: Yeah. Um, so Robin Shaw talked about what you talked about, the uh, perception of detection. I think that's a, a good line for what we're talking about. You yes. Know, it's, it's funny you mentioned the living above means. So my wife started out as a public defender. I started out as a state attorney. And so I remember doing all these um, like probation hearings where people are like, oh, I don't have any money. And like, okay, well, what phone do you have? Bam. Brand new iPhone. All right. You're, you know, you're sitting in front of me wearing like this giant gold chain. Okay. You know, what did, what did you do for this? what did you do for that? And you would just see all these situations of people like, I had one person um, who signed up. So this was, I was a prosecutor, so not the defense attorney uh, who like signed up for this class. that was like $75 six times and then never finished it. Cause he's like, Oh, I couldn't get a ride. You're like, okay. So you spent, you know, whatever that is $450 on signing up for the course because you couldn't afford, you know, a $10 ride. And so it's just, it's interesting to see, a lot of those situations, really, uh, you know, a lot of attorneys have experience in that from the lawyer side. Take some of that gut reaction to the business side.
1: Excellent. Yes, you're right.
0: Thank you. Well, so what? What other things you want to make sure that we cover? You know, what? What are some of the? What other insider wisdom do you have for attorneys when it comes to this forensic accounting, finding fraud in in cases and in their firm?
1: So. I think attorneys are, by and large, too hands off with their own firms. Um, You know, I'll I'll see them on behalf of their clients, like being super interested in what happened in the money and cases and and really diligent about that kind of stuff. But when it comes to their own firms being way too hands off. So, um, you know, so baby steps, if you've been super hands off, start with baby steps to get involved with that financial process. Don't you know, it's kind of like when um, when you want to lose a bunch of weight, you don't go on the starvation diet immediately because that's not sustainable, right? That that's too huge of a change. But you start make if you start making small life changes, you can do something more sustainable. So same thing with fraud. Who knew I would I would um, liken fraud to diets? But there you have there we it.
0: go.
1: Right? No, it makes perfect
0: sense. And and the funny part is, I see that happen on so many things where it's like you are really good you're really good when it's your job, but not so much when it's your ownership. And so there's that benefit of, you know, paying employees to do specific tasks at the firm so that it becomes their job instead of being, you know, that that passion, that ownership. But then obviously, I mean, this is the one that has the most risk to outsource to anybody else.
1: Right, and putting systems in place, like like systems, checklists, things that have to be done every month at certain times that people have to sign off on doing them. Um, that goes back to that perception of detection that Robin mentioned. And I've mentioned, um, you know, where when people know that there's an official process and someone is making sure that those items are checked off every month, that's certainly a help in that regard.
0: So what I'm I'm trying to say from a tactical standpoint, you know, is it better to have, like, is there a a common value amount that you want employees to like pre-approve For somebody else, is it better to have employees all have their own business credit card so you can see who ran what? Like, is there any consistency on any of that advice?
1: Mm, I don't have consistent advice because it really goes with, it goes along with firm culture and how big your firm is and what matters to them and such. You know, at at one firm, you may care about a $50 charge. At a much bigger firm, it's like, yeah, whatever, right?
0: So I don't have
1: consistency. Yeah, I don't have across the board advice for that. Okay. And some of it's trial and error, right?
0: Well, like for hopefully, example, not too much error.
1: Right. So, one of the things that I like for companies to do, rather than having employees um, use a company credit card or submit receipts for business meals and all the little ticky tacky things that might happen when they're traveling and such. I prefer the company to just give the employees a set amount per day for meals and incidentals. So whatever that dollar amount is, let's say it's a hundred bucks a day and just give it to them because everyone is happier. You don't have to check receipts and credit card statements. You don't have to risk someone double expensing things or playing all the games. The employee is happier because guess what, if the employee that evening decides to go to McDonald's for dinner and pocket the rest of the money, yay for the employee. Who cares? Right. right. So that that's kind of something, you know, but but not every firm can get over the mental hump of like, oh, I'm just going to give my employee a 100 bucks per day. like. Eh.
0: And you end up you end up spending more time than the cost would and not building the rapport that it would to do it the other way
1: right and by the way I made up 100 bucks a day i like just totally pulled that out of thin air so don't anyone think like that's like the standard or anything like that i don't i don't know what people use as the standard
0: yeah i don't i guess uh i mean it, i'm sure it depends upon the area it depends upon the time it depends upon who's going but uh, yeah i mean i've seen i've seen all sorts of weird numbers for different right. things so i want to change gears slightly um, obviously there's going to be those cases I think that are so blatantly, obviously ripe, ripe for fraud. Like there's going to be that thing that happens that makes it all 99% clear. And really they're bringing you in from the standpoint of figuring out the level of fraud. But at the beginning of some of these cases for, you know, for business attorneys, for family attorneys, like, are there, what should they be looking for at the beginning or what questions should they be asking or what should they be keeping their eyes open for, to maybe bring you in before it's so obvious or in a situation where there might be a little bit more that they can do about it.
1: Oh, so all these cases, the earlier I come in, the better, right, because we can I can help with the discovery requests and make sure we're asking for the right thing and we're not using the wrong phrase for a particular report or accounting thing. So absolutely, it, it is so much better to come in early. Um, but what kinds of things are, are we having the attorneys look for is, you know, uh, unwillingness to give information or produce documents is always a red flag. Uh, producing documents with gaps in them that they will not fill in um, just general suspicious behavior. And so I name three things. Any one of those three by itself might not be a problem. What we see in cases where there is fraud is probably two or all three of those are probably going to be present. And so I always say it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts. You know, when you bunch of little things kind of add up and create this big picture where you you think there's probably something shady going on.
0: Well, it goes back to that pattern. You know, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to make a mistake consistently than it is to make that mistake one time. Um, And then I, I love that you talked about, it's not just one of those things because otherwise every single case that I have, the other side doesn't want to turn stuff over. So it's,
1: it's not always right.
0: fraud makes perfect sense. All right. So um, as we get towards the end of this, actually, before I do that, what is the best way for somebody to bring you into a case? I mean, is that just a call or an email or is there like a, a specific process to bring you or somebody similar on board? Send me money. Okay. Good start.
1: <laughs> Hopefully not
0: stolen money. Hopefully not fraudulently received right. money.
1: No. So seriously. Um, so Nearly all of the time, I am contacted by the attorney, not by the client themselves. So it's usually the attorney contacting me. Yes, it's either by email, phone call, LinkedIn message, something like that. Um, and we'll have, a, we'll have a little talk. We'll probably, if they contact me by email, we'll probably end up on the phone to talk through what they've got going on. And, uh, you know, I'll obviously gather some basic information about what's going on and figure out if what they have really uh, needs me. And then from there, I use fixed fees only in my practice. So the way we do that is we uh, get an idea of what the scope of the project is. Um, I get a chance to see the financial documents that are available. We then nail down what the scope is. And I provide a fixed fee for me to do that analysis and write the expert report.
0: And how frequently do you end up having to testify at some sort of hearing after this?
1: Um, so honestly, between depositions and trials, I, I testify normally, probably about five times a year. It's not as often as you would think.
0: Well, a lot of times I think you're finding the smoking gun that they need to really, uh, get the leverage to settle. So,
1: right. So, I mean, the potential is always there to testify in almost all of my cases, but how often it happens again, probably about five times a year. And that's pretty typical of what I see with other experts as well.
0: Makes total sense. All right. So uh, for everybody who's joined us and enjoyed this, you can come back on Thursday, 1.30 Eastern time. This Thursday, we'll have Colin Levy on to talk about legal tech, innovations, and finding your way in the legal profession. That'll air this Thursday, 1.30 Eastern time. But I'm not going to let you go yet because I want that biggest golden nugget, that most amazing takeaway If somebody's been listening for the last 35 or 40 minutes and they remember absolutely nothing you said about what you share now, it can be something you've talked about before or something totally different. What is your biggest piece of advice to help somebody become the exhibit A of a successful attorney?
1: Open your bank statements on a monthly basis and look at them.
0: I did that earlier today. And you know what? There are some months where you hate opening up that email, but there are other months where it's wonderful and it needs to happen. So I'm with you. You just got to do it. Makes perfect sense. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was, a, it was a good time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Exhibit A Attorneys. If you're interested in becoming the Exhibit A of a successful attorney, please check us out at LegalEaseMarketing.com. E-A-S-E.